Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 102nd episode of The Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends know me as JAG. I am the CEO of The Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like graphic novels and animated videos. Today, we are joined by Jakob Mishingama. Before I even get into introducing him, I wanted to remind all of you who are joining us, watching us on Zoom, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, use the comment section to type in your questions. Go ahead and jump in right now and um, get first in the queue. We'll get to as many of them as we can. So Jakob Mishingama is a Danish lawyer and human rights advocate whose commentary has appeared frequently in outlets such as the Wall Street Journal, National Review, and Foreign Affairs. He is the founder and director of Justicia, a Copenhagen-based think tank focused on human rights. He is, most importantly, the author of Free Speech, A History uh, from Socrates, to social media. Jakob, welcome again. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jack. Uh, pleasure to, uh, to be invited uh, on. I, I look forward to, uh, to our chat. So um, first, our audience would love to hear a little bit about you, um, where you grew up, what influenced you, and what inspired you to write this book. Yeah, so I, I was born here in uh, in, in in Copenhagen, uh, Denmark. Um, had spent most of my life here with with stints around other countries, including in the U.S. Um, and you know, growing up in in a very secular, liberal uh, country like Denmark, I didn't think too much about free speech. Like many other people, I, I you know I just took it for granted as a value that was sort of settled and. Um, but then Denmark became uh, sort of the epicenter of a global battle of values over the relationship between free speech and religion when in 2005, a Danish newspaper published uh, cartoons depicting the Muslim, Muslim prophet Muhammad. And uh, that led to sort of um, a huge outcry, boycott attempts against Denmark, um, terrorist attacks on journalists and editors. And that has sort of... Um, a conflict which is still ongoing, which is intimately linked to the later attack on French magazine Charlie Hebdo, where um, a dozen or so journalists and, and employees were, were murdered by religious fanatics. Um, and so that really got me interested in the whole uh, topic of free speech. You know, what, what does it mean? Where does this right come from? Why is it so difficult to be principled about it? Why do people change their mind about the value of free speech? according to their underlying values. What does it mean when a, when a society has free speech, when it loses free speech, when it's never had free speech? Um, so, so and, and you know, I, I think that trying to understand the, the, present, the present through the, the prism of the past is, is uh, sometimes very useful. So that's what I try to do first with the podcast, Clear and Present Danger, History of Free Speech, which I finished back in 2020, and then the book is sort of an attempt to uh, to pull all of that together and and, uh, and and write it in a hopefully compelling way. Which I think you have succeeded in doing. Um, and as I was mentioning before we got on, I particularly enjoyed uh, the audible version with an excellent uh, narrator. Um, I, I remember the uh, the Charlie Hebdo um, 
attack very clearly. I was in Paris at, at the time. So, um, so it, it uh, felt very real to me. Um, so with this book and studying free speech throughout history, you delineate elite speech and egalitarian speech. And, and I understand that's something that uh, you hadn't necessarily really categorized um, in, in the past. So what, what is that distinction historically, I guess going back uh, to, to ancient Greece really, and how uh, is that distinction playing out today? Yes, uh, I think that's a very important and recurrent theme throughout uh, the history of, of free speech. So I, you know, I, I think free speech originates um, in the Athenian democracy, um, the, the, you know, and, and so had around 2,500 years of, of going back in time, uh, where the, the Athenians had two overlapping concepts of free speech. One of them was isagoria, meaning equality of speech. So that was political speech that all freeborn male citizens could exercise in the assembly where they voted under their direct democracy, voted and discussed laws. But then they also had a, a, a broader concept called parisia, which means something like uninhibited speech, which permeated their culture. So it was tolerant of social dissent. Uh, you know, we, we all know the history of Socrates who was executed for his opinions, but he had for decades been allowed uh, to roast uh, people in humiliating intellectual Q&As uh, in the Agora, the marketplace, in, in Athens, uh, and and you know you could poke fun of the high and mighty. You could even uh, poke fun of the uh, of the gods. So you know while there was not absolute free speech, it was uh, significantly freer than than uh, than contemporary societies, and especially sort of more oligarchic uh, societies. And then you also had free speech in the Roman Republic, which which you know uh, originates later on. But there you have a more elitist, top-down um, free speech tradition. So one in which the well-educated, um, wealthier elite are the ones that exercise primarily free speech and where uh, the, the, the plebs, the, the, the commoners are seen as not being worthy of participating in public discussions and too dangerous to allow to have any real uh, political power. So. So even though you know Roman citizens could uh, could could cast votes in, in various assemblies, they were not they didn't have a right to address them and speak the way that ordinary Athenians had. Um, and I think that um, those two clashing concepts or competing concepts of free speech, we see them play out again and again throughout the history of free speech, especially when you have new technological developments or political developments that expand the public sphere by providing a voice to previously marginalized or ostracized groups. Um, so it could be with the printing press. Suddenly, you know, um, you're, you're, you're able to disseminate um, information publications to a, to a much wider audience than before. And it has wide ranging consequences for politics and religion in, uh, in, in Europe. Um, and of course, today we see it very much with the internet and social media. So even though in principle before the internet, um, everyone enjoyed um, an individual uh, right to free speech on an equal basis, de facto, there was a privileged elite that acted as institutional gatekeepers. So if you were an ordinary citizen, 
if you would have a very slim chance of really addressing the public sphere unless an editor uh, gave you a, a platform by, by admitting you onto a newspaper or a TV program, or, or if you were a journalist, or if you were sort of a, a prominent politician or, or intellectual. That changed with the internet and, and social media. And that now we also, again, see that institutional gatekeepers who were used to shape and filter the public debate are extremely worried about the consequences uh, of disinformation and hate speech and other types of, of speech that they fear will sort of lead astray the masses. And, and you know, it's true that there are harms and costs uh, involved in, in, in free speech, but as we may get back to, I, I tend to look at the history of free speech as supporting the, the idea that until now, <laughs> The, the benefits of free speech uh, outweigh the, uh, the harms and costs. Um, you coined a phrase, Milton's curse, in, in your book uh, to describe, I believe, the selective and unprincipled defense of free speech. What inspired the attribution to the poet Milton and what are some examples both historically and contemporarily of uh, this kind of selective bias and how we apply uh, the principle of free speech. Yeah, so John Milton is not only famous for a sort of paradise lost in his poetry, but he also wrote in 1644, the um, so which was a um, very eloquently written defense of press freedom and, a, uh, and an attack on the institution of pre-publication censorship. And uh, so that means a lot of people laud John Milton as being sort of an early defender of, of press freedom and, and free speech. But when you read more carefully, you see that, that, that Milton is actually not advocating press freedom for Catholics. Uh, he's also uh, you know, in, in, uh, fine with book burnings if, if they're sort of uh, uh, too critical of, of religion or, or seditious. Um, uh, he later supports a, a, a very draconian blasphemy ban, and the ultimate, uh, the ultimate irony is that he ends up serving as a censor under Cromwell, uh, who sort of led a um, semi-military dictatorship uh, in the in the 1640s. Um, so, so that that's why I, I coined the term Milton's curse, and we see that again and again. Someone like Voltaire is often credited with being a free speech absolutist, but he very much was in favor of elite free speech and and also try to sort of sometimes point the French uh, rigorous censorship system under the old regime in, 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 uh, in the direction of, of authors that he didn't like or compete with. Um, and you, uh, you see it with the founding generation in America. Um, so someone like John Adams in, in, in 1765 rails against um, uh, the, uh, the um, British attempts to, to sort of put duties on, on printing material and says that this is the, the attempt by the British to impose slavery on, on, the, on, the, on the colonists. And then when he becomes president, uh, um, Congress adopts the Sedition Act, which basically is an attempt to protect uh, himself and, and his Federalist Party from criticism from the Democratic Republican um, competitors or, or, or opponents. And you have uh, Hamilton and George Washington on board with, uh, with this. So, so it's basically something that you see again, you, and, and you see it now to, to even today where, you know, I, um, I saw a, a tweet by Hillary Clinton um, recently saying that uh, she was in favor of a recently adopted European law regulating social media that, 
that obliges social media platforms to remove uh, illegal content. She was very much in favor of that, though that, you know, if that was to be adopted <laughs> in the US, that would mean an obligation to remove a lot of material that would be protected by the First Amendment. But you could also have the whole um, sort of culture wars in, in America. So, you know, you can have conservatives who are who rail about cancel culture, and then they'll support politicians who adopt laws against critical race theory that would sort of put limits on what colleges and universities can, can say uh, and teach. So, so it's just, uh, unfortunately, I think hardwired into <laughs> human beings that principles are extremely difficult and that we are very good at, at coming up with reasons why the, the, the free speech is important, but we need limits and those limits um, magically tend to uh, be in line with our own ideological preferences and, and that hence we, we can convince ourselves that they're not really limitations of free speech. I see. Uh, all right, I have a few more questions, but I just wanted to uh, remind everybody in the audience, this is a wonderful opportunity to ask questions of uh, really one of the world's leading foremost experts on uh, free speech, its history and its importance. So go in there, type in your questions. We're going to get to them. Um, Jakob, you have said that we are in a global free speech recession. How do you measure that? Uh, and what are the trends that are driving it? Yeah, so, you know, on, you know if you want to take a more positive look, um, you could say that we're, in, in a certain sense, living in a golden age because, you know, free speech has never been strong, enjoyed stronger legal protection under the First Amendment, for instance, in the U.S. Um, and free speech is a global international human rights norm and just technology allows, you know, you're sitting in, in California, I'm sitting in Copenhagen, we're, we're having a frank discussion, I can criticize American politicians, there's no censorship uh, at all. So that, you know, is an exercise of free speech, although I I, I, you know, I, I think both you and I just take it for granted. This is part of, of what we do. We don't think of it as exercising free speech. We, we don't feel like, like, like dissidents when, when we're having this uh, discussion. Um, but then on the other hand, I would say that the, the, the golden age may be in decline. And why do I say that? Well, because uh, the, in general, there's a tendency of, of more and more restrictive laws being adopted. And that's not surprising in authoritarian states like Russia, um, like uh, yeah, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and so on. But increasingly, we also see it in, in liberal democracies uh, in, in Europe, um, where um, you know hate speech, uh, disinformation, uh, illegal content on, on social media, European Union now um, banning Russian disinformation. Um, in, in, from, from broadcasting in Europe and, and you know, even demanding that, that uh, certain Russian information be removed by social media platforms. So even if you want to counter it, um, you, you can't necessarily share it on your, your own social media profile if you're in Europe. Um, and then uh, there's a culture of free speech, which in many ways may be more important than legal protections, or at least uh, um, a necessary precondition for having robust legal protections. And I think that's, that's the main worry in the US it might not so much be the law because um, in, in the short and medium term, the First Amendment seems to be in very safe hands with the current Supreme Court, which, which, which puts a lot of emphasis on, on, on free speech. But long term, 
you know, you have um, a tendency where especially younger and more um, progressive Americans uh, view free speech as a threat to minorities and to tolerance. And so they tend to put less, less emphasis on free speech, might even see it as being weaponized against tolerance and, uh, and democracy. And then you have a backlash or a counter reaction from conservatives that I described in, in this uh, attempt to, to then sort of ban various uh, types of speech that they, that they don't like and that they see as undermining um, you know, the, the, the values that they, uh, that they uh, hold in, in, in high regard. I think that's a dangerous development because if the culture of free speech in the United States deteriorates, then ultimately the First Amendment is also likely to be um, more, less robust in its protection. You know, the First Amendment was ratified in 1791. The wording hasn't changed. But, um, you know, throughout its history, there's been a lot of speech that uh, Supreme Court justices were completely indifferent to or were perfectly fine with being punished <laughs> punished severely um, that, that would be uh, protected uh, today. So it's not you know, it's not an iron law that the First Amendment will continue to enjoy the same robust protection that it does today. And I think, especially in a very polarized America, I think if the robust protection at the legal level was to break down, I think you would see, uh, I think, you know, a bit like maybe, uh, dare I mention the, the topic of abortion <laughs> these days, but the way that, you know, certain parts of the country would have laws that prohibited certain types of speech uh, reflecting their underlying values uh, and and other parts in the country where it be so in certain countries it might be you know you, you'd have uh, uh, laws that would make it more difficult uh, for Black Lives Matter to have uh, militant protests in the streets and others where you know the NRA could not really protest because you'd, you'd have certain types of, of, of laws targeting uh, targeting that that would be might be laws where it would be a crime to burn the stars and stripes and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and so on. And I think that would be a nightmare scenario. You know, imagine you being in California and you write something and then you uh, travel to Alabama and then you're, you're arrested because you wrote something that was legal in California but was prohibited uh, in, in Alabama or, or, or vice versa. Um, yeah. So that Probably would be my- vice versa huh? in my yeah. case. Yeah. Um, so, 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 um, so, 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 yeah. So, so that that that's why I see sort of a, a free speech recession, which uh, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's a bit paradoxical again because we have social media and the internet. We have better ways than ever before to actually express ourselves, but then the, the limits on what we can actually say are also uh, sort of becoming more uh, uh, less permissive, if you like. Right. I mean, between the quote that the tweet that you'd mentioned from Hillary Clinton and then um, former President Barack Obama coming out and uh, making um, really an alarming and uh, strident case for more more censorship, more moderation, more control online. And all of this is happening, as you mentioned, when we have um, protesters in front of the uh, Supreme Court calling um, for packing the court, adding more uh, politically appointed uh, Supreme Court justices to, uh, to kind of move towards uh, the kind of um, decisions that, that they'd like. So uh, it is alarming. And on that note, I am gonna dive into some of our questions here. Uh, my good friend, Scott Schiff asks, 
if Jakob has heard about the Biden administration's plan to create a disinformation governance board under the aegis of the uh, Department of Homeland Security. So this would be a board with, with uh, yeah, but from what I understood, uh, you know, it's been almost impossible to get any coherent uh, response as to what its powers actually were. And, 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 you know, I think that under the First Amendment, its powers to limit, uh, to do, to take any sort of action, concrete action against concrete speech would be <laughs> very, very limited. Um, um, you know, um, not least due to New York Times versus Sullivan, the 1964 decision, which you know, a lot of people forget was actually a, a civil rights uh, decision. So, so um, and, and, and as an aside, you know, many of the very robust protections and expansions of, of, of the First Amendment were, were landmark civil rights uh, decisions. So, so I, it's, not, it's unclear to me what this board will, will actually try to do, but it seems to me that it could not really do anything restrictive, but, but restrictive, but it sounds sort of dystopian. You know, the name itself, in and of itself, is a, I think should be a no-no in, a, in, a, uh, in, in an open democracy. Um, yeah. This is not to say that, you know, disinformation cannot lead to harms or you know that free speech does not come with harms and costs it, it, it does um, but uh, but I think you know sometimes we make sort of the logical fallacy of saying oh some certain types of speech may in, uh, cause harms but and, and then say well then we have to prohibit it but it does not follow from the fact that certain speech includes may entail harms that uh, prohibiting that type of, of speech is a an efficient solution uh, uh, and or b uh, would not result in unintended negative consequences that were worse uh, than, uh, than, than, uh, than allowing uh, that type of speech to to be published uh, and and of course there are all kinds of alternative non-restrictive measures you can you can use to combat disinformation uh, I mean that's the whole point of of having an open democracy is that we can discuss and debate uh, certain issues. It's not that that we're trying to provide uh, one side of the debate with a club with which to beat its opponents uh, into silence. Um, yeah, so. I think part of uh, the problem that I have uh, is it's not just the establishment of this board, which I find uh, very concerning, but the use now, the ubiquity of the term disinformation, misinformation, mm. malinformation, like I, I, I didn't even know yeah, that yeah, was, was a word. And they're not, they're it, just kind of anti-concepts. I mean, things are either true or they're false and yeah. labeling something as disinformation is, is a judgment call. And is that uh, judgment going to be made by the government and how is it going to be um, implementing. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and that's why you know, you know, from 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 the Catholic Church to Henry VIII to uh, the Soviet Union to Nazi Germany, um, all all of these institutions and, and states had laws against false information, 
uh, that were that were used, you know, of course, to protect the rulers uh, and leaders who who got to define and enforce the, those definitions, you know, from from battling heresy uh, in, in 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 the Middle Ages to to enemies of the people under Lenin <laughs> um, and, uh, and and Hitler. Um, so. So I, I agree. You know, it's a it's it's a it's a nebulous category, uh, and almost inevitably will be will be weaponized in a in a certain way. Um, and also, very often, you know, who 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 you know, you might not be able to. So, so COVID is a good example. So you know, we we we're trying to understand a brand new virus and and uh, encountering it while we we still don't have a, a full picture of what it means and then trying to then sort of say uh, what's the what's the truth about it uh, it becomes very difficult and ultimately I think contributes to erode trust in health authorities if they go out and make very robust statements and then it turns out that they might have believed at a certain point this is the best available science but then you know um, researchers uh, in, in another place of the world finds, you know, comes to a different conclusion and then you have to revise as you do all the time when it comes to science. Um, uh, and, 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 and so in, so in many ways, um, trying to sort of um, combat scientific uh, misinformation, for instance, I think uh, is, is, is ex extremely counterproductive uh, in, in, in many ways. Also just because you can point to a lot of, you know, here in Denmark are, Health authorities, to their credit, admitted that they had made several calls that were wrong in in in, in hindsight. I think that actually increases trust in institutions that they ad admit to their mistakes, because otherwise, that's so that you you basically feed the the conspiracy theories about you know, Bill Gates and five G towers and and all, all the rest of that. Um, well, so, I'm going to so, have to. I had, was going to save that question to the last, but uh, I, we we were just talking before we began the webinar um, about the guest that I had two weeks ago, uh, Johan Anderberg um, and his book, Heard, on Sweden's experience. So um, uh, what, what were the mistakes that they admitted to? Because here in the United States, uh, the CDC has yet to admit to any mistakes. Yeah, so for instance, in February, when, uh, yeah, uh, I, I guess it was in February or uh, January, February, first of all, they said, you know, there's no signs that this, going to, this is going to turn into a pandemic. Uh, <laughs> and then they said, you know, yeah, sure, uh, Dane, why don't you go on um, skiing in Austria where there had been outbreak? It's not really a danger. And then they, you know, they went, they got infected, and it became sort of a super spread event that really uh, set off the, the epidemic here. Then, you know, changing guidelines about, uh, you know, changing, I think also something about uh, whether asymptomatic spread, I think they got stuff wrong on that. Uh, on face masks, uh, they, got, they got stuff uh, wrong on that. And again, you know, it's uh, it, uh, it's it's not because they were engaged in a conspiracy theory to uh, deceive the the Danish population. It's just that you know uh, you know they 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 probably didn't know better and or or they had to you know come down on one side of of conflicting information, and that's why you can't make an authoritative case because you might not know. And I'm sure you know when future generations uh, look back on. COVID and how we handled it and how, how we understood COVID, 
that might be a lot of things where they thought, oh my God, how they were so naive. The same way, that, you know, we might look back at how they handled the Spanish flu at the time and there were certain things that they cut right and there were other things that they completely misunderstood. Um, and, and, and that's likely to be the, the, the same story. All right, well, I'm not going to uh, drag you off onto one of my hobby horses. Um, and I wanna get back to the book. And uh, we have a question here from Instagram, uh, Marcus Abbott asking, who just, yeah, who in general do you think are the free speech's biggest heroes and its greatest villains? So who are some of the, the characters who, who have yeah. primary so, roles uh, in your book? Yeah, and, and so, if we look at history, I, you know, I think one of my favorites is Frederick Douglass, uh, the, the great abolitionist and, and orator. Uh, you know, I think his 1860 uh, uh, plea for free speech in Boston is, is one of the, uh, the strongest, shortest cases ever made for free speech. And I think it talks very much to, to some contemporary issues. And it also uh, shows, I think, why uh, the idea that free speech uh, entrenches unequal power relations and is a threat to minorities is is wrong. Uh, and, and Frederick Douglass saw that very clear. He said that the right of speech um, is uh, is a very precious one, especially to the oppressed. And, and I think I think um, that that has a lot of truth in it. Um, I also like George Orwell. I thought George Orwell was was good because he actually, you know, he. He was anti-totalitarian. He was, and but he saw the dangers both the left and the right. But he spent a lot of time sort of going up against his own. So he was on the left. He was a democratic socialist, but he was extremely hostile to communists and saw clearly the totalitarianism of, of communism and the uh, attempt to sort of police speech by doctrinaire um, uh, communists. Uh, and I think that that was extremely important that someone. Take, take up uh, that, um, um, I think James Madison um, wrote a very convincing uh, argument uh, against the Sedition Act in his report of, of 1800, which, which made a very strong case for, for a robust uh, commitment to, uh, to, to free speech under the First Amendment. Um, and the levelers, uh, sort of an almost forgotten group of, uh, of English uh, radicals, radicals from the 1640s who, in many ways, I think they're sort of a proto advancing ideas that would uh, more than 100 years later become part of, of the American constitutional uh, experiment, sort of um, their idea of, uh, of, of, of democracy, of universal tolerance, of, uh, of robust free speech. Um, so, so I think they, they are some of the heroes. Ida B. Wells is another, probably never been a braver journalist than Ida B. Wells, who founded a, a newspaper, the Memphis uh, Free Speech, who went around the South documenting lynchings and, and showing that sort of the standard defense of lynchings often was that, you know, white women had been raped by black men. And sh so she showed that, that many times this was, you know, white women having consensual sex with blacks, and that was not a message that was appreciated uh, by white Southerners. And so a, a campaign of, of incitement uh, was, was, was aimed against her. Her newspaper was destroyed and, and she, she had to flee. But, but I think she really, um, she, she fought hard uh, and, and, and used free speech in, in practice to, to advance some important causes. 
So uh, lots of other uh, important figures, but those are those are some of my my favorite ones. Heroes. What about villains? Oh, how long do you got? <laughs> <laughs> Give me your top three. Uh, that, 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 that's 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 uh, you know the 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 entire history uh, of of, uh, of of human history. Yes. I think the, the default position to, is is, is by to this be book. yeah <laughs> is to be. Uh, is to be critical. I think you know, until I, I, I think until Xi Jinping sort of used um, uh, artificial intelligence and sort of modern communications technology to try and sort of superimpose censorship all over Chinese society. I think Stalin might have been the worst censor uh, in, in in human history and the most repressive. So. It's not only that you know he happily signed the death sentence of political opponents, but it was just like he acted as a censor himself. You know, he would read books, he would read plays, he would uh, manuscripts, uh, and uh, he would screen films and be extremely engaged uh, in it, while at the same time sort of building an extremely repressive uh, state. So, so, so Stalin would would, um, would would certainly be uh, among the top. Of, of the worst of the worst. All right, no, we'll get no disagreement here. <laughs> um, question coming in from Facebook, Jeremy C is asking, do you think there are parallels um, between those two speech freedoms? Maybe he's, he's talking about the uh, elitist and egalitarian kind that you were describing in Athens uh, and Rome and how big tech tries to suppress uh, certain views on social media. Yeah, I think, you know, the internet and, and sort of the early Silicon Valley um, culture was very much based on egalitarian free speech. So, you know, I don't know if you look up, um, maybe you're familiar with the John Perry Barlow's uh, Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace from 1996. So it's this sort of extremely civil libertarian vision of the internet as completely boundless, basically states have no power in, 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 in building a completely new techno-utopian society with no limits whatsoever or whatever limits would at least be decided by, by ordinary people themselves and not uh, in any way shape governments. And so that was a very decentralized radical model of, of free speech that dominated the internet early on. And then, you know, that sort of continued the, the internet i think was still quite horizontal uh when you had the blogosphere uh you know you had a lot of different blogs no one would really care how they were content moderated because no single blog would would in, in itself uh, affect the entire ecosystem of information and opinion online uh, and so whether there were neo-nazi blogs or whatever you know you, you, you could just avoid them. But then, you know, you move into our current era, which is much more centralized, which is, has become platformized, if you like. And so suddenly decisions made by Facebook that has around 3 billion users tend to have an actual real effect on, uh, on, on, on free speech, uh, even though, you know, maybe Ayn Rand would say, well, uh, doesn't matter uh, because it's, it's a private company. So, you know, private property trumps uh, any free speech uh, consideration. They can do whatever they want. 
Um, but I think uh, that, in, in my opinion, the culture of free speech is about more than the relationship between individual and government. That is also something stressed by John Stuart Mill and Tocqueville and, and Orwell uh, and, and, and Frederick Douglass. Um, so even though I would not argue that you should sort of adopt a law um, that, that would oblige Facebook or Twitter or others to uphold First Amendment standards, for instance, I still think there's, there are good grounds to criticize the way that they do content moderation, although I also acknowledge that it's impossible to do well and that you know, you're never going to be able to satisfy everyone um, and, and that you will make a lot of mistakes. But, but I think it does have an impact on the ecosystem of, of freedom of uh, speech and information and, and, and has moved to much a more elitist um, vision. It's still, you know, it's still, I think, to a very large extent, egalitarian in the sense that everyone can set up their account. And, 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 um, but but it's, it's clear that there's been a lot of pushback by, by governments, by traditional media and others to try and have more control on what is being said and, and shared uh, on, on, on these big platforms. Got it. Uh, all right, Ginger Snap 56. I think he just answered pretty much um, your question. So uh, going back to Facebook, Carl Phillips asks, what do you think about concerns about fake news and how journalists might be self-undermining trust and support for a free press? I, well, that's, a, that's an interesting question because I know you've um, had criticism that uh, former President Trump who that was one of his, his favorite uh, themes, you know, to kind of make fun of and, and criticize uh, the, yeah. the press for their, their bias, but you voiced some concerns that um, those, those attacks could undermine um, uh, support for free speech. But, you know, I yeah, think no, I, Paul I, I is kind of asking the opposite, you yeah, know, no, the side no, point. I, I, I think, uh, I think, uh, and and here I'm I'm thinking about America that to a large extent, traditional media has become much more polarized and and sort of uh, partisan, which I think undermines uh, the position of of the of the press. Um, uh, however, I don't think that justifies the rhetoric uh, and behavior of, of, of uh, and it's not just that. You know, Donald Trump would would call the enemy, uh, call journalists enemies of the people, sort of mimicking Lenin uh, rhetoric. It's also that he actually wanted to introduce laws that uh, would 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 punish people, uh, journalists that he thought were saying uh, um, were lying or, or writing wrong things. Uh, but he was prevented to do so by 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 the First Amendment. So so even though he he, he wanted to, he couldn't do it. Um, um, but, but obviously, you know, I think it's important to be extremely critical of, of the media and not, uh, you know, unquestioningly believe everything that is written in, in the New York Times and be aware of the biases of, um, of, of traditional media. And that's what you can actually do with social media and the internet. You know, you can, and that's, I think, also what some traditional media resent, the fact that they can be openly questioned before they could get away with a lot of things, because... Where are you going to voice your critique? Are you going to say you write a a, a a letter to the editor of New York Times telling you know how they got things wrong? Well, that might not be be published, and and even if it did, it might just be you know one hundred words and not be displayed very prominently. Now the criticism 
um, is there, it can go viral. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, I think most people, most of us are not very happy about criticism um, and, and are uncomfortable with, with criticism. And, and will even if we uh, say that we're in favor of free speech and so on, uh, might be tempted to try and, and use various methods uh, to suppress criticism of ourselves so that it doesn't get out in the public. All right, we've got about 20 more minutes. Uh, we're going to have many more questions um, than we have time for, but, uh, but I'm gonna prioritize the question, our audience questions rather than my own. I am gonna ask that um, our team post uh, links uh, because Jakob had mentioned Frederick Douglass, I'd love to post uh, a link in the comments to uh, My Name is Frederick Douglass, our animated Draw My Life video of him, as well as uh, My Name is Free Speech. Okay, going um, back to Instagram, James Cummings asks, how does uh, a free speech culture work in Europe compared to something enshrined in the U.S. Constitution? And, and maybe um, in answering that, you could also cover uh, the concerns that you addressed in your uh, Wall Street Journal op-ed on uh, why you felt that uh, moves to further ban um, hate speech uh, by the European Union could actually uh, backfire. Yeah. So, of course, it's, it's important to be clear that there's not a sort of unified culture of free speech in Europe. Europe is uh, a lot of things, you know, the, you know, even among the 27 member states of the European Union, there are various free speech cultures and free speech tradition. Denmark tends traditionally to be have be one of the more permissive um, liberal in this classical word understanding of, of, of free speech and one that tended more you know, not completely towards um, viewpoint neutrality, but, but pretty much so, you know, in, you know, unlike Germany, for instance, as in Denmark, you can engage in Holocaust denial, swastikas are not, uh, are not banned, you know, we've had Nazi radio stations and Nazi political parties uh, and, and so on. And I think also, you know, for instance, we don't have uh, in Denmark anything near the same debates uh, and toxic atmosphere at, at universities that you deal with in, uh, in, in, in the US and, and, and not all, and also there are things you know that could be written or said that are not banned in the US but that might not you know that a, 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 um, a traditional media would not publish. Uh, I don't think any of the major newspapers publish the cartoons, for instance. Um, a lot of Danish newspapers won't do it either, but that's because they that's, that's basically out of security concerns. Um, um, having said that, uh, as I mentioned, laws are, are being adopted. So Germany is uh, a, a classic example because of their past. They interpret their past uh, because of, of the rise of Nazism, the collapse of the Weimar Republic, uh, to, to include an, an, an obligation to be intolerant of intolerance, if you like. Um, uh, and, and, and that's a model called Middleton democracy. So basically, democracy should be aggressive when it comes to the enemies of democracy uh, and, and ban them proactively. Um, as I argue in the book, that is based on, on, on what might be called the Weimar fallacy, because it actually, when you look at the history of the Weimar Republic, uh, lasting from 1918 to 1933, 
is that they had a lot of speech restrictive laws. It's true that they also had constitutional protections of free speech, but for instance, the radio was censored. Nazis and, and communists could not uh, be on air. You know, Adolf Hitler was banned from speaking in various uh, states. And because of all the political violence, because of the polarization, there were more, the, the, the constitution allowed the president to adopt these emergency measures and, and, and have emergency powers. So, so for instance, um, the government could administratively ban newspapers for up to eight weeks um, if they spread false information or extremism. Uh, and um, leading Nazis were, were imprisoned for sort of anti-Semitic um, excesses. Uh, and all of this did not seem to uh, to prevent the Nazis from uh, from gaining popularity. In many ways, they used it uh, very cleverly to to gain more attention to post themselves as martyrs. And and I think most worryingly is that they the Nazis actually used the emergency laws of the Weimar Republic, the very laws that were supposed to protect democracy. They used those laws to suspend free speech, um, and and which paved the way for them to basically uh, uh, eliminate all their political opponents, uh, adopt a one-party state within six months of coming to power, uh, and ultimately, of course, committing themselves to uh, genocide and the extermination of, uh, of, of Jews and, and total war. So um, I'm not arguing that if, if, more if less censorship had been in place, Nazism could have been avoided. You know, there are lots of other factors that are uh, in play, and some of them probably more important than the relationship between free speech and censorship. But I just don't see any good evidence for, you know, I think if you want to restrict free speech in open democracies, then the burden of proof should at least be on those who want to limit free speech, that those restrictions are necessary uh, and proportionate and efficient in encountering the dangers that you fear. And, and I just don't see the history of the Weimar Republic's collapse as one that supports that thesis. We also have um, uh, social uh, science research that suggests uh, that, that there might actually, um, countries that restrict free speech might be experiencing more, more violence. So if you try to, to limit what extremists can say, they be, may, it might be easier for them to legitimize using violence uh, because they're not allowed to say what they speak their minds, then um, you know, uh, psychologically, it's, it's easier for you to justify uh, resorting to, uh, to violence. So those are some of the unintended consequences of, of free speech restrictions that um, might be a bit too complicated for politicians that just want to signal that they, are, they don't want to tolerate you know, hate speech or disinformation or extremism and want to do something about it. And what's the best thing you can do about it as a politician? Well, that is to ban it. And also no one is really going to stand up for the rights of uh, Nazis or you know uh, extremists, uh, only very very few people, especially in Europe, care that much about free speech to to really stand up for for principle, and, and that's how you can sort of gnaw away at free speech at the edges, and then if you continue doing that continuously for decades, then suddenly free speech has been severely compromised. Um, well, so at Steel Wheels on Twitter, I think he pretty much covered your question. He was asking about. Uh, free speech in, in different European uh, Union countries. I guess I would just ask which country um, has the, the most uh, robust protections for free speech and uh, the most kind of robust culture of free speech in, in Europe? Would that be Denmark? I think Norway might, Norway and Denmark might be the countries 
that I, you know, though I think our current, the last two governments we've had in Denmark have really made inroads, uh, have, have undermined our tradition of um, sort of civil libertarian commitment to free speech. And Norway has, has had courts that have been much more reluctant than most others to prohibit categories of hate speech and glorification of terrorism and, 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 and such such categories. Um, Denmark is a special case. Uh, you know, as I, as I mentioned, you know, we had a, the communists were members of parliament for a while. They had a, a headquarter in the center city. They had a newspaper funded by, by the Soviets uh, and um, they could, you could run around with hammer and sickle if you wanted to, and you could also be openly a neo-Nazi. And, and uh, in 1969, <laughs> Denmark became the first country in the world to decriminalize uh, porn when it came to even in images. They decriminalized porn in, in, in writing literature in, in, in 67. So that says something about sort of the, uh, the liberality of, of the culture. And, and 69 is actually a very interesting year. It's also the year that the US Supreme Court um, made its decision in Brandenburg versus Ohio, which sets a very, very high bar for when you can, when you can prohibit speech that it basically has to be sort of uh, incitement to imminent lawless action that is also likely to occur. Um, and it was also the year uh, where a very brave soul at the BBC decided that Monty Python could be shown on, <laughs> on British public tax funder paid television. And I still think that's a, you know, a very, very brave decision given the, the content of, of, of Monty Python. So, so that might have been one of the sort of the high, model, high watermarks of, of, of free speech history. All right, uh, let me see, I'll take maybe one more um, from Facebook. Pasha Miller asks, what do you make of the social justice warriors who make the claim that speech uh, is violence? And she's asking, where does this notion come from? Well, it's actually a very old uh, uh, notion. Um, you, you will see that even, you know, among those who were, or at least that, you know, speech translates into very direct, uh, tangible harms. Um, so, you know, um, someone like Thomas Aquinas, an eminent uh, philosopher, writes that, you know, um, it's worse to be, to, uh, to permit heresy than to, uh, than a robber, because heresy destroys the soul and, and pollutes the community. Uh, and therefore, it's right to execute a, a heretic who's, who's, who's an obstinate heretic. He should be given the, the chance to repent if he refuses to do so. Uh, it's not only just, but it's right to, uh, to, to, to execute that person. And, and that's a bit of the same in, in, in this idea that words are violence. Um, and, and in many ways, I actually think that speech is the antithesis of violence. I think speech is absolutely necessary for us to live together despite our differences. So there was a time in, in European history, for instance, where you know, if you denied the Holy Trinity, uh, that if you denied that Jesus Christ was divine, that was seen as an existential threat to society and people would literally try to, 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 to kill you or uh, you know, confront you physically. Today, in most Western countries, uh, you know, a lot of people might not even know what the Holy Trinity is, <laughs> um, but they certainly would not think it uh, a threat. And, and you know, Catholics and Protestants and 
can, can live side by side uh, and no one wants to kill the other or view it as a threat that they believe in a special way. And, 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 and that is due to tolerance and, and, and free speech. And I think, you know, in everyday society, we have to compromise and be pragmatic in order to live together. Um, unless you're very, very rich and own your own island, you know, most of us will have to, to, to accommodate other people's various needs and, and, and so on out of politeness and just for society to gel. But in order to reach compromise, in order to be pragmatic, I think we need radical free speech in order to, you know, to discuss our differences and come to some sort of solution. We, we need to be able to, to say everything. Uh, and I, that's what free speech really allows. So I think it's completely a misguided idea to treat free speech uh, as violence. And you know, it also begs the question: if there's no real difference between between free speech and violence, um, you know, th does that then mean that uh, if you say something that I find is uh, offensive, and I, you know. I view it as a punch in the face. Do I then have the right to punch you physically in the face? Is that the same thing? If you were to say something now, to me now that, that that I thought was was violent, uh, you know, if we were sitting across from each other and, and I punch you in the face with a fist, would that then be, you know, oh, there's no real difference. Uh, you said something that offended me, I punched you in the face. Uh, is that the same? I think most people in reality would say, no, that's actually not the same thing. And again, that does not mean that, that speech cannot lead to, you know, you couldn't organize a genocide, for instance, uh, without using speech. We saw that in Rwanda with, with the radio. But again, that's also where you tend to have limits on free speech. So even the First Amendment would not protect the kind of speech that was disseminated on, on Radio Milkolin in, in Rwanda, where they basically said, I'll go out and, and, and hack your neighbors to death with, with machetes. Um, so, so um, yeah. I don't know if that was a, a yeah. Well, that's almost almost a good place to to end it. But um, I'm actually surprised that nobody uh, asked this from our um, social media audience. So I'll I will ask it um, to close us out. Of course, it's the big news uh, aside from the. Um, the uh, Homeland Security uh, Governance Disinformation Governance Board, um, the much bigger news, I think actually the, the biggest news uh, of the past couple of years is Elon Musk's purchase mm -hmm. of uh, yeah. Twitter with the explicit intentions to increase transparency and reduce censorship on the platform. Um, obviously we're all talking about it here in the United States. Maybe uh, it's not as big a deal over in Europe. But, oh, it is. Uh, Everyone's talking about it in Europe as well. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So, so uh, you know, I, I think there are various ways to look at it. One of the things, you know, uh, you know, given the, the fact of Milton's curse, um, the fact that, that, um, Elon Musk says that he will improve, uh, he's committed to free speech, does not necessarily mean that he'll be so in practice. And so there is, uh, I think, good reasons to be skeptical of the world's richest man buying a platform like, like Twitter. You know, will he, will he be open to, you know, I think there have been stories before about him trying to suppress inconvenient news about Tesla and other things. So will he be open to being challenged? Will he be open to his businesses being dragged through the mud? Will he, you know, if, if he invests in certain countries that don't like dissidents, will he, will he, will he continue to provide a platform for those? We don't know that because 
uh, people tend to to be flexible about their free speech principles when they're put on the spot. So is 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 Elon Musk completely different from from everyone else? We'll we'll see. But I think it's also uh, incredible to witness the reaction of so many politicians and journalists who make a living out of exercising free speech, but again, who take it completely for granted, sort of in complete meltdown about this news and about, you know, you know, no one knows what how this will play out in reality, but they've already concluded that basically Twitter will be turned into uh, a platform for neo-Nazis and Russian disinformation. Uh, and then there's sort of the, the, um, the, the, the take that I think it will be very difficult for Elon Musk to to um, to go back to the early days of, of techno utopian uh, free speech um, maximalism of, of the 1990s, uh, um, just because a lot of users will not be want to do that, and and so if you lose a lot of users, if you lose advertisers, and you've just spent 45 billion, you might be the richest man in the world. But I'm assuming that you actually also want to make a dime. Of, of, of that investment and also laws in, in Europe, you know, if you want to operate in Europe, you're obliged soon by this Digital Services Act to remove uh, certain types of illegal content. So, you know, if, if Twitter wants to operate within Europe, they will have to adopt um, restrictive content moderation practices. And that's the so-called Brussels effect, which means that laws adopted in, in Europe tend to be sort of the default position of, of some of these platforms. So which means it might have a spillover effect in, in, in the US. So Americans might be subject to sort of moderation without representation, if you like, due to laws passed in, in Brussels and, and Berlin. All right, well, I appreciate that uh, nuanced kind of perspective on, on Elon Musk, because I agree. I, I think there have been so many of us, myself included, who've been so frustrated um, by what we've, experienced as uh, the really unfair uh, and one-sided um, suppression of a particular points of view. So uh, it, this is not the savior. Let's, uh, let's reserve judgment. Let's be skeptical. Uh, but at least let's find some, some reasons to be optimistic and, and hopeful because uh, we could all use a little hope these days. So Jakob, thank you so very much. Thank you, Jack. It was, uh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for, for having me on. Um, and thanks to all of you who joined us, go out right now, buy this book, Free Speech, The History from Socrates to Social Media. Um, as uh, I'm a total audiobook addict and uh, I, five stars aren't enough uh, for me to rate the audiobook version of, um, of Jakob's uh, Free Speech book. Um, it was really well done, so uh, check it out. And uh, we can follow uh, Jakob on Twitter. Uh, it's just at with his name. And um, any place else, Jakob, that we should be following you or how can we help you? I'm uh, sort of old fashioned. Uh, I've got, I'm, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, still still struggling with Instagram, you know, uh, that, that's how old school I am. <laughs> Your kids will be able to help you any day now. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, but they're. Uh, I think my daughter is like mostly TikTok, and you know that's up. I uh, that's not for a me, bridge I too think. far. Yeah, I think so. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Um, hey, join me uh, later on today. I've got a clubhouse with our senior scholar, Professor Stephen Hicks. Um, it's going to be an Ask Me Anything on philosophy. 
tomorrow we've got a clubhouse with uh, another senior scholar at the Atlas Society, Professor Richard Salzman. And next week, I'm um, going to have a very interesting uh, The Atlas Society Asks. Uh, as some of you may recall, we had the, uh, the feminist Kara Dansky on a few months ago, um, voicing her concerns about certain aspects of uh, the transgender um, activist uh, agenda. And so I um, want to make sure that we are taking in different perspectives. So I'm going to have Buck Angel. Um, he is a transgender man. So born a woman, um, living as a man. And, uh, and we're gonna get some, some different perspectives uh, in terms of what it's like to, uh, to come to the realization that you don't feel like you fit well in your body and um, how he, he, he sees the, the current uh, kind of battle over um, parents' rights, individual rights, and, um, and acceptance for people uh, pursuing their own unique identities, so. Thanks very much. See you later today. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks. Bye.